Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. 21st of January is the 70th anniversary of George Orwell's death due to tuberculosis, just months after he published 1984. This means the copyright in his work has expired in the UK. We're already seeing a flood of new editions, and no doubt many people are working on new ways to adapt his books. Why is Orwell still such a huge figure in the culture, and will this free-for-all diminish or increase his reputation? My guest today is a prolific novelist, critic, and biographer. DJ Taylor published what I think is the definitive biography of Orwell in 2003, is currently working on a new edition due out in 2023. As it happens, we've both written biographies of 1984. Mine is The Ministry of Truth. His is called On 1984. And we've both written introductions to new editions of 1984. So if ever a Bunker Daily was firmly in my comfort zone, it's this one. Hello, David. Thanks for joining me. Very good to be here, Dorian. After we'd arranged this, um, Orwell was trending on Twitter yet again after the attack on the US Capitol. Uh, Trumpy Senator Josh Hawley claiming the cancellation of his book contract could not be more Orwellian. Given that this was a writer who famously criticised political dishonesty, uh, the misuse, overuse of certain words, um, do you sort of flinch at the misappropriation of Orwell? Are you you used to it now? I do flinch, but I am habituated to it because it's one of those words. There are so many words in current political cultural discourse that have gone, you know, done 180 degree terms, uh, turns from their original definition. So, Liberal these days always seems to me to mean fundamentally illiberal, you know, and democratic means undemocratic. So it's quite obvious, it's quite logical in a way that Orwellian should mean, i.e. diametrically, almost diametrically opposed to everything Orwell stood for. But um, the problem is, of course, as you know as well as I, that Orwell stands for so many things these days and can be invoked by so many interest groups, can be purloined by so many constituencies that you barely know where to start in defining what the word means these days mm. and it's weird that i think you know it, in 1984 the problems in airstrip one uh, you know there's violence surveillance the sort of distortion of reality the rewriting of history and so on and yet in this sort of context particularly the right-wing context they seem to may only be interested in sort of the free speech issue almost as if as if it's a book about free speech absolutism do you think Orwell's ideas about free speech in the book but also in in his essays were consistent enough to be useful now? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it possible to always say, well, Orwell would have thought this about free speech? I doubt that it is, actually, because Orwell wrote so much, so concentratedly, um, in those, those 21 volumes plus more, that there is, there is something there for almost everybody, if you look hard enough. You know, it's uh, it's almost a bit like the Reverend Lovejoy in the in the Simpsons with the Bible in front of him. You know, there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a text there that can justify anything if you look hard enough. Yeah, I mean, my my rule is, although I do enjoy, you know, sort of having a pop at people that that kind of misuse his his work. The only the only thing that I feel that I have actual a real right to do is to sort of call out the uh, the false quotations. Oh you know, yes, yeah. It was the kind of whiz around, and they're on a meme, and they're stuck to a picture of his face, and he never said them, and they're words that he. Mm would never have used at the time. And I think if there's something that's completely false, I'm allowed to say, no, that's false. But in the realm of interpretation, you you, you can't really go, well, you know, the, the this is... You, you know, you're not allowed to use him. You're not allowed to quote him. No, and that, that, that problem, I agree with you about that. And that problem, of course, is compounded by the inevitable, you know, the number of times that what would George have said? What would Orwell have thought... And, and this is complicated by the fact that, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with him, but many, you know, there are several people who knew him really well, for, you know, have implied that his views about 
the, the line we would expect him to take now isn't perhaps the line that he would have taken. Um, I remember, I mean, I remember Anthony Pohl saying in the 1980s that he thought Orwell would have been very anti-CND in favour of the Falklands War, all this kind of thing. And you think to yourself, well, would he? And then, then you think to yourself, but Pohl, whatever we may think of Pohl's political views, Pohl was probably one of Orwell's greatest friends in the later 1940s. Mm. Had shared a very similar upbringing, very similar views about things. You can't discount that sort of opinion, however much you may disagree with it. Um, and I was very amused. There's a piece in Pohl's journals um, where he complained. I mean, he actually complains about Bernard Crick, you know, um, the, 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 the first Orwell biographer. Mm. Crick came to have lunch with Pohl in the 80s to ask him about the relationship. And Pohl says that Crick frankly said he could not understand how George and I could have been friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it was completely ridiculous because their shared upbringings and the fact that they'd been to the same school, you know, moved in the same sort of circles, of course they would have been friends. They would have understood each other very well. And yet, Pohl was an old Tory, you know, old Tory right winger. But they, the fact remains, they were bosom chums. And you've got to take that sort of thing into account, I think, when making these speculations about what he might or might not have said about things. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, later about, you know, what what if he had lived longer? But but just to stick on this on this issue of the expiration of copyright, you wrote uh, a blog for The Guardian that it's a bit more complicated than it, it seems. And it's not as if every word he ever wrote is up for grabs. So how does this work in terms of the additions that are out of copy, you know, the, the additions of his work that are out of copyright, you know, the other things like articles, letters, mm. so on. What, what's covered and what's not? Well, the additions thing is all very interesting, as I discovered to my own, uh, you know, I'm doing, it, I'm, doing, I'm doing the six novels, um, an annotated edition of them, you know, with endnotes and uh, critical apparatus. And, of course, you can't, you, the, most, the most recent, when Peter Davison produced his 20-volume definitive ed- edition in the 1980s and 90s, and he, he re-edited, um, you know, all the novels from the um, you know, annotated mm. text at the time. And, of course, those are still in copyright. Those uh, Penguin Random House have the copyright of those in the UK and will continue to have them for another 36 years. Right. Um, or or is it, no, certainly for some, you know, because they're, they're, this is, we're talking late 1980s, so those are only mm. in copyright now. Quite, there were several things, a good case in point, for example, is the essay Such Such Were the Joys, you know, the famous My, My Childhood Torture at Prep School, published in the States in 1952, wasn't published in England until 1968 for fear of libel. So that's in copyright for a good long while. Uh, and then there are things, you know, the recent discoveries, which are not even in copyright yet, but they have been printed up. And obviously people were very, very excited about the possibility of, you know, Muppet 1984 and so on. Um, but, but didn't, I mean, I know that Orwell's widow, Sonia, sold the screen rights uh, back in 1980, I think. So it's a TV and movie adaptations of that book particularly, is that a whole other case where somebody else is in charge of permissions? I'm not even sure where the film rights of 1984 are at the moment. Uh, uh, certainly... Non-film things, I think that the, the, the field is pretty much clear. You know, 1984, the musical, which David Bowie wanted to make in the early 70s. I mean, presumably you could go ahead and do that now, couldn't you, if you wanted to? We were, I mean, there's the Animal Farm video game, I think, that came out just before Christmas, didn't it? So with the, you know, there, there, there's going to be stuff out there that at the moment is unimaginable to us because of the nature in which modern media is changing. You know, there will be things that you and I can scarcely dream of at the moment that will 
probably be in preparation soon and we shall sort of sit there aghast thinking how on earth could they have made a such and such and such and such yeah let's see and uh and the people that don't get there first will have to do like the rock musical of clergyman's daughter or something <laughs> well have you I, I must say the a lot of the interest does seem to be trained on 1984 and animal farm i mean i haven't heard a huge amount of interest in vouchsafing a clergyman's daughter which is a shame because it's uh, it's uh, you know eminently well worth fossicking around in. I think. Well, I was going to ask because I've 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 written an introduction for lit just nineteen eighty four the in, yeah. the in the Macmillan editions, but you're writing introductions and commentaries for the Constable editions of all six of his novels. Mm, that's right. And, yeah, and I, I sometimes wonder, you know, what would be the status of those first four if you without the mega success of Animal Farm in nineteen eighty four? Which of these do you find? the most satisfying to read that you would say this is not just sort of interesting early work because of the later novels, but it's, it's actually well worth reading in its own right, which is your favorite of those. Well, I, I, I'm probably not the right person to ask you see now, because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so immersed in them and I find them so useful biographically because I find mm. that every time you go back to one of those four thirties novels, another aspect of his personality or another aspect of his life, keep the Aspodistra flying, which is, um, Again, I remember reading about the age of 15, 16, being completely blown away by this kind of, you know, this embittered midget poet sort of, you know, moth-eaten at the age of 30. And mysteriously, he is still attracted to women. Now, how does that work? You know, but <laughs> so, and um, in terms of how the novel works, you know, and a novel being true to its artistic convictions, the trouble I have with Keep the Asper District Flying is the ending, which goes against the grain of the previous 240 pages. So I think if if all had been a fr- if all had been Zola, which he wasn't obviously been very influenced by Zola and those nineteenth century French naturalists, if all had been Zola, Rosemary would have ended up in a home front married mother. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that these novels would have any status if he had died in say forty four? I think we would have. Um, I think we'd have regarded him as a, a an interesting minor novelist of the 30s who hadn't yet hit full throttle, is mm. what I probably think, because they are, um, they're very, I mean, I love those four early novels, and I'm not denigrating them in the least, but they, each of them does what all, well, a lot of Orwell's early writing does as well. They use literary models, and you can see what some of them, in some cases, what those literary models are. I mean, clergyman's do- um Keep the Aspidistra flying is very used by Gissing. Uh, coming up for air has got reeks of the scent, the scent of H.G. Wells. Um, mm. Burmese Days, scent of Maum. Um, incidentally, I just discovered that uh, Maum was in Burma at exactly the same time that Orwell arrived there in 1922. Now, Orwell, A Life was published in 2003 on the sort of centenary of his birth. You know, for a scholar, it's kind of like the, the, the dream, but it kind of leaves me, it sort of left me thinking like, well, what else is there and without sort of giving away obviously the, the, the kind of scoops um where how where have you and obviously the people everyone that knew Orwell pretty much apart from apart from his sort of you know son and nieces and nephews mm, has mm. passed away so yeah. what what's been the kind of the, the new areas that you've been able to explore even at this distance well you're right about the absence the sad absence of personnel now i mean i count richard blair and i sat down not long ago and tried to calculate the number of people alive in the world with coherent memories of him. I mean, obviously, there are, there are people, you know, who sat on his knee at the age of two because their parents were his friends, but they can't really remember very much. And we got it, we got it to six people. 
I discovered an old gentleman of 90 uh, just before Christmas who knew him, in, who remembered him from Southwold in the 1930s. And, um, and I think uh, there's an elderly cousin lives in America who has memories of staying on Jura with him in 1948. There are one or two other people like that. But no, you're right. In terms of people who, you know, who saw him playing and spoke with him, we're, we're talking a handful now. But uh, very fortunately, in the last few years, um, some big caches of um, letters have turned up, uh, mostly pertaining to, um, you know, his Suffolk, Suffolk loves in the 1930s. And um, it's amazing how much stuff sort of sort of comes in, you know, and I went to um, on a completely different project. I, I recently wrote a book about the lost girl, you know, Cyril Connolly's female circle on Horizon. Yes. Yeah. And I, um, I just had I went over to see um, the Connolly family, Cyril Connolly's uh, son and his widow, Deirdre. And this was a couple of years ago. And as I walked through the door, Matthew Connolly was holding up a piece of paper and said, look what we just found in the attic this morning. And um, anyway, anyway, I, I won't spoil that's it. A, no, that's incredible, though. It's one of those great moments where you go, oh, my God, you know, to think that it had been sitting there in an attic for 70 years. There's always stuff out there. Uh, in fact, um, I was very fortunate because my eldest son, who's just finishing a doctorate at Oxford, uh, was able to into the waltz, waltz into the Bordelian just before Christmas and, and get me a transcript of a couple of letters that have turned up that uh, Orwell wrote to Michael Sayers, his former flatmate, um, you know, when they lived at Lawford Road together in 1935. And the Sayers papers have just come up. So that sort of so there is there's constantly stuff turning up. And I'm interested in his, his reputation because it's you know Orwell's reputation has gone through certain phases. Um, and John, John, the critic John Rodden is very good on on this. The phase of reputation. Mm. But I, I wonder. My impression, I suppose, was that, that these two, your two biographies, are going to come come out twenty years apart. But okay. my impression, I suppose, was that that, that Orwell's reputation seemed quite stable. Now, do you think that it it has changed much? since 2003, whether it's sort of, you know, ebbed or flowed? I would have said that um, it's it's exponentially grown as far as I could see. I mean, you only have to look in the uh, media coverage. I mean, uh, every attempt, every the faintest vestige of an anniversary, and there are, there are people jumping up and down and, um, you know, asking one for articles on what Orwellian means these days. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we, we had the 70th anniversary of his death last year, and I'm sure there, there are, it, it'll be um, 1930 and another two years. It'll be the um, 90th anniversary of Down and Out, so we shall, we shall start again. And then all the novels will then come up for their 90th anniversaries, having had their 80th <laughs> anniversary. I don't know where it's going to stop. I really, no. I, I really don't. We're... Um, it's a it's a it's a boom market and it's been getting i think over the last 20 years it's just been getting even more of one i shouldn't complain obviously because i've uh, written a book uh, oh. and, but but um you know I, I i sometimes find when i'm reading sort of articles in sort of you know the political periodicals mm. that you just know that if it's about england or if it's about sport or if it's about mm. freedom of speech or if it's about mm. surveillance i'm almost sort of or making cups of tea in fact, he turned up. He turned up. He turned up in the Times Nature notes yesterday morning, where Jonathan Tullock was writing about toads. And so, of course, you get Orwell's description of what a toad's eye looks like in some thoughts on the common toad. I'm always dreading them because I always see them almost like songs that you've heard on the radio too many times. You just mm. go, "Oh, oh, it's that quote from the line in the Unicorn, that quote from Orwell." And sometimes I just get scared of using him at all mm. and thinking, well, like, the "Are there other people with interesting?" Like Malcolm Muggeridge had loads of interesting things to say about the '30s, mm. and so I kind of sort of almost feel like, even with myself, this sort of 
this fatigue from how he's always the guy. I know what you mean about that, Dorian. And in fact, the way I'm trying to get around it is um, that there are certain sort of aspects of the, the, the thing. One of the things I enjoyed doing with um, Orwell the Life was the, the, the chapters are sort of interleave with little mini essays on various aspects of Orwell that didn't treat themselves, didn't lend themselves to chronological treatment. You know, Orwell's face, Orwell's voice, things like mm, that. Mm. And there are other bits of Orwell that bear that kind of examination. I mean, for example, one of the uh, one of the amusing things, if you track down some of the controversies that some of his Tribune articles caused, you know, and cross readers writing in, Orwell, <laughs> Orwell could get quite feisty when it came to replying to readers' letters. You know, George Orwell writes, "I have never been accused of this, but I'm just going to tell Mister So and So that he can, you know, so he could he could actually get quite cross." And I found an absolutely extraordinary letter to uh, to Cyril Connolly, which I think is about Connolly's attempts to edit politics in the English language. And I've never seen or never I've never read Orwell quite so cross. And presumably he thought he thought that he could do that with Connolly because they'd known each other nearly forty years by, by you know by by this point they were old school friends. But he can really fly off the handle at times. So I'm thinking Orwell's temper. That's interesting. You know, like, it's, it's that sort of thing. I think he would have got into lots of needless Twitter fights. <laughs> Do you know, every, every time I'm like, go off, I lose my temper. I think, well, you know, I, he, would, mm. he would have done that. Mm, mm. But I think, you see, there, there are angles. There are all kinds of other angles one can come in at him from and, um, you know, sort of um, that, that, that are perhaps not the more sort of conventional ways in which he is, uh, he is examined. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of quite hopeful there that there are different sort of different vantage points one can take um, on him. I mean, and also there are, there are sort of little explored areas. I mean, I've always been very interested in Orwell's poetry. It's not very good, some of it, but it, it does tell you quite a lot about him and the things he was interested in at the time and, and the sort of artistic models that he was. And, and it fits him into a whole wider context, which was that whole band of, you know, the, the Edwardian greats, all those British writers who started their careers in 1900 to 1910, Quite a lot of them started off wanting to be poets. Mm. They moved into prose. I mean, Graham Greene's first book was a book of poems, for example. And, um, and and so I think Orwell, when he began, sort of, I mean, Anthony Pohl again said that um, I think one of the the funniest, but also one of the most profound things he ever said about Orwell was how Orwell, how George would have loved to have been a poet killed in the war. (laughs) (laughs) Say something about him. What's fatiguing, I think, about the way some people use Orwell is that he's always right. Whether they're on the right or the left or the centre, they always choose something which shows that mm. Orwell was right. But one of the things that uh, um, that I really liked about your, your biography and which kind of encouraged me in that direction as well was that you you weren't you didn't mind sort of calling out certain ways in which he was flawed either as a writer, as a thinker, you know, sort of politically or just as a person. I know that's a hostage to fortune, actually. I mean, there is a, you're right, one of the mini chapters in All Well, The Life is called The Case Against. And that absolutely fatal thing to have written, because um, I'm not disparaging, um, uh, uh, well, I, I suppose I am disparaging American readers with no sense of irony, who, you know, who would sort of seriously write, oh, this is a very critical book, why Mr. Taylor should take against this hero so much. You know, it's a joke, it's ironic, but you, you can't do that. People, people just 
don't understand I think <laughs> but I think but I think it is so important to get away from that St George thing and, yeah. and think about because he and himself was always talking things he got wrong fl- flaws in himself when you're th- now you've thought about him and wrote about him even more mm. um what what still sort of stands out as for him as sort of his biggest flaw or, or blind spot some something that he just really could not get his head around and they're all there. Are, there are any number of them. And he was, you know, he was a creature of his times. He had uh, certainly in the nineteen thirties. He held towards Jewish people the conventional attitudes that a lot of British male British public school educated people held. You know, whether we like it or not, there are some very unpleasant remarks about Jews in, for example, uh, down and out in Paris and London, and um, and other books. He was uh, one of the things. I mean, in psychological terms, one of the things that always always strikes me about Orwell is that he seemed to, in an odd way, suppress so many natural emotions. You know, there there are ways in which kind of parts of him aren't working a lot of the time, and um, this extraordinary sort of solitude, aloofness. This this comes through in a lot of the le- the letters to the to the women in the nineteen thirties. They're in some ways they're very they're very bantering, they're very jokey, but they're in some ways they're very self pitying too. You know, he's always sort of there is this sort of sense of, of 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 poor me and why won't you you know have you abandoned me and and all this sort of thing and it's half jokey and it's and it's half serious at the same time. I think he was. I mean, it's a point I've made before, but. I'm conscious of it all the time, how good he was at dramatizing his own life, if you know what I mean. And, um, and also the, the, the complete unworldliness, too, you know, the, 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 the sort of complete sort of uh, lack of realization of how certain forms of life went on. Um, you know, and I, I remember when um, the, the, there's a classic, when, when Richard Rees was taking him south to Cranham, you know, to the sanatorium to begin the long, slow period of his decline, in 1949 and they got to um so they went from jura to glasgow and reese says that orwell seemed to think he was in england you know didn't quite twig that this was actually scotland and then was very was was extremely interested to find that the railway tracks actually ran on through the different kind of railway companies you know the gauges were the same it was all very extraordinary to all that the railway system worked in the way that it did No, I, I find those things so humanising because it, when he's held up as this sort of extreme, you know, this font of wisdom who understood everything, but, you know, w- reading his film reviews, when you just realise how little he understood about film and how bad he was at it. And I think it, that's so important to bring down this giant figure to the level of a, of, a, of a normal writer who has some things he's really, really good at and some things he's not good at. I discovered recently, you, you may know this, um, but I discovered recently about those film and those theatre reviews, Time and Tide. He was so bored at having to do them and had so other things he wanted to do that he actually paid his friend Innes Holden to go and see the films for him at times, did the research for him. She, so she was supplying with some notes and themes, and he would, write up, he would then write up the review and give her half the money. This will reassure music journalists I know who review gigs <laughs> that they never saw. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, finally, I, I want to talk about in the final bit what he might have what he might have done next if he hadn't died in 1950. And we've seen there's drafts of essays, there's yeah. ideas for novels, yeah. and and there's reading lists, and and there's definitely much m- moving away from the sort of obsession with with understanding and explaining totalitarianism. Do you think he would have gone in? Not that he would have you know, lost interest in the subject altogether, but do you think he was he really was wanted to go in a very different direction from what had led to 1984 well i think uh, i don't know what you think but i think that the next what he would have done in the early 1950s had he lived it would have been almost like the beatles he would have got back because the notes for a smoking room story 
Mm. Uh, you know, well, there's only two or three pages of them, but it's about this chap called Curly Johnson coming back on the boat from Burma in 1927, having you know got into a scrape and lost his job and so forth, and the old ladies on the boat. Are t- and it's it's more mess for me. It's going back to the world of Burmese days in some cases almost before it. So that's very interesting, you know, that he should want to go off in that direction. I'm also interested, he wanted, there was a point in the early 1940s where he wanted to write this big kind of family saga novel, didn't he? Which sounds a bit like the Forsyth saga. I wonder what that would have, that would have come, because his tastes, you know, another in Orwell's literary tastes, apart from a brief uh, fixation with Joyce, were very old fashioned. So I, I kind of, I get the feeling that had he lived in the 50s, he'd have quite approved of the movement. You know, he'd have liked Amos and Larkin and that lot, because again, it's, it's, it's plain man stuff. It's common man writing. It's about um, what William Cooper called uh, man in society rather than man yeah. alone. I think he'd have been quite keen on that. And, and the other thing, of course, is that if, if he'd lived, is that he would have had to take positions on a whole you know, whole range of events. So if just a couple of years, we'd have known what he thought of McCarthyism and the Korean War. In the 60s, obviously we said people have written about this endlessly. What would George have thought? What would you thought about Vietnam, the civil rights movement? Counterculture. What, would he have liked the Beatles, you know? <laughs> well, he had no interest in music at all, except for, you know, the popular songs of his youth, which he remembered. But uh, I think the thing about the counterculture is, of course, that in the mid-late 1940s, Orwell was hanging around on the fringes of what then counted for the counterculture. I mean, you know, Richard uh, Richard Blair, aged five, spent uh, a summer at the anarchist col- Whiteways colony in uh, in Gloucestershire while his father was in hospital. And Orwell was hanging out with people like Reginald Reynolds and George Woodcock and Vernon Richards and you know anarchists. But I, I don't know. I think he'd have had a, a you know he wouldn't have been would have been a conventional reaction at all. But again, as we always say, these speculations are profitless. <laughs> But the, yeah, because you because you can't be sure, unless I suppose you're, a lot of time you're sort of confirming your own biases, as people did, you know, and they said he would have been a neoconservative, or no, he would definitely wouldn't have been. Um, but I, I wonder, one of the things that sort of struck me was that, that, that because of his relationship with H.G. Wells, and that Wells sort of lived too long, and he had mm. decades in which to be glaringly wrong about things, or to just... And just, or and to, just not to write as well. I mean, I... I Yes. Recently, a, a Tribune essay where he said most writers have about 15 years when they're at their peak and then they decline. And H.G. Wells is an example of this because no one remembers the books he wrote after about 1920. They're all, you know, they're all consigned to the furnace. But he's still alive and still still writing stuff. So is that the curious thing, I suppose, in thinking about all well, this? Is a great sort of tragedy that he died at, at, at this sort of, you know, this after this great breakthrough. Um, mm. Both as a kind of writer and and as an actual sort of successful, mm. a successful writer in his career, um, and yet because he died when he did, you know he remains sort of not just the work stands up, but also he remains on the right side of history because he was right about imperialism and fascism and communism. So we don't get to see him be potentially wrong about Vietnam, you know. And you're absolutely right. He died at exactly the right time, and there's that famous quote, isn't there, from Muggeridge? who comes back from the funeral, starts reading the obituaries and says that he sees how the legend of a man is created. You know, you can see within three or four days of Orwell's death, there it is. It's all set in stone. The myth has been perpetuated and away we go for the next 70 however many years. So you sort of wish there had been more, and obviously you 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 wish that he had not died so young mm. and so horribly, while knowing that, you know, however much longer he had lived would 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 certainly have complicated and maybe you know sort of dented that that reputation 
you're quite right because there is this very sort of complicated relationship now between Orwell and his public. And because of the way things have worked out, he, he, he and his life and his legend now fit perfectly the roles that we have created for them. And somehow the biographer has to get out of that or has to find some different angle of coming in and some different sort of, you know, one has to try and confirm certain of the suppositions that people have about him while challenging some of the other ones. Um, and there, I think there are more, I mean, there, there are obviously, um, you only have to read, you know, academic essays about Orwell to find how it is possible to criticise him on anti-Semitic terms, on feminist terms, on patriarchal, you know, whatever. But that's all too easy, I think, because that's, that's just demonstrating what a man of his time he was. So I think there are other angles that are possibly going to be more useful for the biographer than some of those. Yeah, I suppose the challenge is always just to get away from the big sort of the suffocating, almost sort of monument version and just get into all the complexities of, of, the, of the man and yeah. the millions of words he wrote. Yes, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, DJ Taylor. Oh, it's great. I mean, we could go on. I mean, let's... <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's, that's great. And thanks to you for listening. David's book on 1984 is out now, and the Constable Editions of Animal Farm in 1984, with introductions and commentaries by David, will be out in June with the other novels to follow. My own introduction to 1984 is published by Macmillan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yellen Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.